We're going to go into a uh, series on the Psalms. Uh, it's going to be eight weeks. I don't think it's got a name, the series. Did you? No, it hasn't. It's a nameless series. So if you're taking notes, please invent a really good name. Submit them to Tom at the end, and he'll pick the best um, for future weeks. Um, so we just wanted to do a little... A little um, I love the Psalms. And I just wanted to sort of talk about what they are and how we can think about them usefully, because I think there's a lot of ways of dealing with the Psalms um, that might be useful for us. I think the first way is if, if you open your Bible in the middle, you'll be in or around the Psalms. And that's a good demonstration of what it's about. It's, a, it's In one way, it's an anthology of the rest of Scripture. So you get creation Psalms, which deal with the, the beginning of the Bible. You get Psalms extolling the law and, and the first five books of the Bible, especially Psalm 119, but there's many others. There's history Psalms, which deal with the history of the people of Israel. There's prophetic Psalms, which look forward um, and interpret in a sort of really pictorial, vivid way what God has done and what he will do. And those images are picked up by later prophets and, and expanded upon, which we'll go into a bit, actually. Um, there's messianic psalms, so talking about the, the Lord's anointed king who is going to come. And then there's psalms about, about the day of the Lord, about the end, of, the end of all things, when God will restore all things and make sad things come and true. So that's one way of thinking about it. I think another useful way of dealing with the psalms is a, is a prayer book. I don't know how many of you use prayer books, but most of them are based on the psalms. In fact, if you use the Book of Common Prayer from the... Uh, the 1600s, I forget the exact year now, um, but uh, you read through the entirety of the Psalms in every month. So you literally, if you do morning and evening prayer, you'll read through every single month all 150 Psalms. Um, so they're so useful as a way of shaping our worship, as prioritising what we should be doing. They're so useful in corporate settings. So many churches um, use sing Psalms every week um, in fact, some in Scotland who only sing psalms, even today. And they're so useful in personal worship, teaching us how to pray. There are emotions expressed in here that you wouldn't want to admit to your spouse, to your uh, mum, to your best friend. You wouldn't. There's, there's things in here that are said to God that it just seems shocking. But actually, it's so useful to have them in print and to be able to say, Oh, actually, I have these emotions sometimes, and it's okay to come to God. He's not going to shy away. He's not going to be shocked. He's not going to answer my vindictive prayers either. You know, <laughs> he, he will listen, and he will, and he will treat me as his child. Um, but he's not bound by them or anything, so I can say whatever I want to him, and he'll be fine with it. There, there's, there's such anger in here towards God. There's such, there's such abandonment the feelings of abandonment towards God. Why have you forsaken me? And I think it's really, really helpful to have that freedom um, that the Psalms gives us to, to think like that. I think the third way we can use the Psalms, which is a, new, a newish one on me, not new in general, is more canonically. So thinking of it as a book, just like any other book of the Bible. So it has an introduction, which would be Psalms 1 and 2. And then you get Psalms from the life of David, roughly, Psalms from the life of Solomon, Psalms from the life of Solomon's sons, the, the kings of Judah, Psalms from exile, and Psalms that look ahead to restoration. 
And actually you could read, in one way you could read through the Psalms and then get a picture of the whole Bible if you read it in the first way, looking at those things. Obviously it'd be really out of order, quite confusing. Or you could read the Psalms and get a whole crazy of the history of Israel up to that point. Um, which, actually I should say, the, the titles of the Psalms, the Psalm of David, are actually part of the text. So in order to do it the third way, you need to remember that, because else you'll skip over them thinking they're just like the titles in the New Testament, which aren't part of the text. Sadly, in the English version, we don't get verse numbers for them. In Hebrew, they're just verse one of the psalm. Anyway, um, <laughs> just really important that we, I think we should read those before we read the psalm. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 1, which is a good place to start any series on psalms. So I will read that. I'm going to read it in the ESV. Um, for reasons that I will hopefully talk about if I remember. So it says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But I like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, I, I pray that I would speak in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I pray that I would shine the light of Jesus into, into your church as I speak. I pray that you be with us by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, this is the first psalm. <laughs> so this is the, the start of the book of Psalms, and it's actually quite important that it's the first one. We, we think of Psalms, as we say, as 150 separate songs, but actually there is some structure to them. And we're first introduced to this, this man. Blessed is the man. Now, this blessing is not, this blessedness is not kind of how we think of it often, which is, which is emphasising God's specific outrageous blessing to, to someone or a blessing, a blessing in response to something someone has done. It's more a situational thing. So this man is happy. He's flourishing. In fact, in Deuteronomy 33, in the ESV, this same verb is translated happy. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. They're not blessed because they're saved by the Lord. They're blessed in the situation of being saved by the Lord. It's a small point, but I think we need to get into our mind this happiness, this flourishing, this being in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing, doing what we're meant to do. Um, and that makes sense of the image that comes up about the tree in a bit. This is the same verb translated into Greek that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes as well. So, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's, that's that same idea of being situated in the right place. Flourishing. Happy. Um, and the picture that it gives of this flourishing happiness, this right situation, is being like a tree. I live near Baydock's Wood, which is sort of in between Southmead and Henley's. And there's a little river, a little tributary of the River Trim, a tiny stream at some times of the year and then a bit bigger in the winter, um, that runs right through. And I always think whenever I walk along the 
the bank of this river, I always think these trees that are growing up either side, they are happy trees. <laughs> they, they, they don't mind the fact that it's only a little, a little uh, tiny stream in the summer because they have deep roots that are sucking up all the underground water that's still there. They are so happy, satisfied and fruitful. There are thousands or well, hundreds of little trees, little saplings growing up underneath them because they are bearing fruit each year and it's falling down. They are fruitful and they don't, they, they don't wither. That's the, um, that's the picture we get in this psalm. It's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. They're, they're happy trees. Um, but this is not an idea that this psalm, the person who wrote this psalm, it doesn't have a superscription, this one. That's why I didn't read it, just in case you thought I was being a hypocrite. Um, <laughs> that it, it, whoever wrote this psalm hasn't thought of this image off the top of his head. The first tree planted by a stream in the Bible is in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2. So there's, there's a river, a great river running through the middle of this garden. This is a place where heaven meets earth. And this river splits into four, into to the uh, Pishon, Gihon, Tigris and Euphrates, and they water the whole of the known world. <laughs> they water the Assyrian Empire, they water the, the Egyptian Empire, they water, the, um, they water Babylon. It's, it's this picture of the, the God of Israel's God creating the world, and then an overflowing in his grace, overflowing to water and give life to the entire world, not just, not just Egypt. Um, but by this river in the garden, there is a tree, the tree of life. And this tree has fruit that brings eternal life. You eat of it, and there's eternal life. So this is where this image comes from in Psalm 1. But if, if you know the story, they, Adam and Eve don't eat of it. Um, they eat of a different tree. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So instead of walking in the garden with God in the cool of the night and receiving knowledge and wisdom from him, they choose to get it a different way. They choose to get it in a way that God says not to, by eating the fruit of a different tree. And they're cast out of the garden, both as a, a punishment and a consequence of their sin, but also as a protection. It says, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. Because it's not good to live forever in sin, and in sickness and death, and in that toil. So they're protected from the tree of life, in, in a sense. The, both sense of the truth. But we see through the, re- through the next bit of scripture that there's a desire to get back to that. There's a desire to be in the presence of God again. And it's symbolized often by these same images of trees and fruit. So um, in the temple and the tabernacle, there are, there's carved wood everywhere. There's um, embroidery of trees. There's embroidery of pomegranates. There's pomegranates along the bottom of the curtains. There's the, the priest's garments have pomegranates on them, it, you know, embroiderings of pomegranates along the bottom, along the hem. It's, it's all a symbol that this isn't Eden, this isn't what was meant to be, but it is the place where God meets with us now. And one day there'll be a, there'll be a true way. This is a shadow, but one day there'll be the true way of, of, of communing with God, meeting with God. So this is where this image in Psalms comes from. This tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in its season. It's a tree of life. Um, but this is not where the image ends in Scripture either. So 
it gets expanded upon by later prophets. In Jeremiah 17, verse 7, he sort of writes a, a, a um, paraphrase um, or a version of Psalm 1, at least the first half. He says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. <clears throat> he is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green, and this is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So we have a slight intensification of this image. Instead of just bearing fruit in season, it's, bearing, it's, it's not ceasing to bear fruit. And though hardship may come in the form of drought, there, there's no fear, because like the trees in Badak's wood, they've got deep roots. They're, they're in the, all the squashy stuff under the, under the stream that is full of water all year round. And then Ezekiel picks up on this image again, intensifying it again. So Ezekiel, at the end of his book, sees this overly, <laughs> overly uh, complicated, uh, no, overly detailed image, in some ways, of a um, temple, of the, this temple that he's never built, but he sees this image of the sort of heavenly temple, heaven meeting earth. And out of the temple flows this river. Now, you might remember, he, he walks in a kilometre and it's up to his his ankles, and he walks in another kilometre, and it's up to his knees. He walks in another kilometre, it's up to his waist. It's this unfathomably big river. There's, a, there's a, just this abundance of life flowing out of the temple. And then he says this, uh, Ezekiel 47, verse 12. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. So now these non-withering leaves are for healing. There's an even greater blessing coming. There's an even bigger river. It's not planted by a a stream anymore, but a a huge, unfathomably big river that would look like a sea to us. And amazingly, this single tree of life is now all kinds of trees along both banks. So the tree of life has borne fruit in itself. And, and many, many subsidiary trees of life have grown up, all of them bearing fruit. They bear fresh fruit every month. So 12 months of the year, all these different kinds of trees are providing their food for the people. And finally, uh, John in Revelation takes this image from Ezekiel. And in Revelation 22, again, brings more light to it, sheds more light on it, gives us more facets of what it means. In the beginning of Revelation 22, he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You see, it's so similar, but enhances it. So now we know that these many kinds of trees on both sides are all the tree of life. They're all part of the tree of life. He gives this image which doesn't make sense on its own unless you've read Ezekiel. He says, the tree of life uh, on either side of the river. How can the, how can the tree of life go on both sides of the river? Well, we know from Ezekiel because there's many trees now, but they're all part of the one tree. They're, 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 made, they're produced by the fruit of the one tree. Um, the, the fruit is yielded each month, and there's 12 kinds. 12 is a very symbolic number of the totality. It's the, all the tribes of Israel. So everyone 
can eat of this fruit. Um, and the leaves of the tree are not just for healing, but they're for the healing of the nations. Not, so there's a real emphasis on all the nations coming, um, coming to see this tree that flows now from the heavenly city and the sanctuary and the throne of God and of the Lamb. So it's an incredible image that flows through the entire scripture from, from page two of scripture to the last page of scripture. There's this tree um, planted by a river that yields fruit and, uh, and its leaves do not wither. So who are we, who are we talking about in terms of um, who is the man? Because I think, I think it's really important. That's why I use the ESV. I think sometimes, sometimes the sort of more plural um, ways of translating can obscure things. Um, and maybe we miss, especially in Psalms, some of the, the messianic leanings of things. That's why I prefer for this particular Psalm, this translation. Who is this blessed man? Now, in Psalm 1 and 2, the main characters of the Psalms are introduced. Uh, in Psalm 2, they're called the Lord and his anointed. It's the God of Israel and the king, the one who's anointed for service in uh, yeah, it, the service of God. But who's this man in Psalm 1 that, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord? Well, again, if we've read through the Torah, if we've read through the first five books of the Bible, it should, should ring a little bell who this might be. Um, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, um, Moses talks about Israel having a king eventually. So there's, there's sort of mixed reports on and whether having a king is good or bad, it obviously can be good, actually, because Moses talks about it in a positive way, but in the end it ends up being a bad thing. Um, but he gives instruction as to what this king should be like and what he should do. And he says this in, in Deuteronomy 17, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So this, this man who is delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night is the king. But he's the ideal king. And we don't have to read far through the Psalms, thinking about it in the third way, in the sense of the history of Israel, to find things going very wrong in the lives of the king and his children in Israel. The Psalm 3, we haven't, we've got to the first Psalm after the introduction. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. This is not the, the happiness of a king and his children in Israel forever. This is not the flourishing place already. But the, the opposition doesn't just come from um, outside of, of David. It comes from inside him as well. Most famously in Psalm 51, the Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had taken Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. 
according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David was a good king all in all, and certainly one of the better ones that is in the Bible, but he did some awful things. He is not this man who is delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. He did follow the counsel of the wicked. He went on raids for the kings of the Philistines and killed many, many people, slaughtered whole villages. He uh, significantly, in Psalm 51, that event, he replays almost action for action the sin in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve taken, Adam and Eve seen something that they desired that they know they shouldn't have, and they took it and they devoured it. He sees Bathsheba on a roof, something, someone that he shouldn't have, and he takes her and he devours her. And it causes so many problems for her, for him, for his family going forward. Um, Absalom. Absalom may have been king without him, and there's so much uh, rivalry between Absalom and Solomon, Bathsheba's son. It's all just a complete mess. And you don't have to go, you can read the rest of the Psalms or the rest of the history books and know that the, the kings of Israel just got worse. In fact, in the end, God would say to them, oh, this land would be better off with the Canaanites. Right? They, they did better things than you. You are doing worse things than they ever did. They are not the people that, this, that fulfill this, this image of the flourishing man who delights in the law of the Lord. But there was, there was one to come, a son of David, who when he came was more than we could have expected from this son. <laughs> because he was, he, he didn't even countenance doing wicked things. <laughs> he was tempted in every way, but he never sinned. He didn't stand in the way of sinners. In fact, he challenged them. He brought them to repentance. He delighted in the law of the Lord. In fact, he only did what he saw his father doing. He was like the tree planted by streams of water, and he yielded so much fruit, fruit that we see here today, all of us, our fruit in this far-off land, the ends of the earth. That's what, when the Bible says the ends of the earth, they're talking about places like this, places so far away that they weren't really imaginable. Um, this is this is the one who is both the tree of life and the Lord himself. So when Psalm 2 talks about the Lord and his anointed, this man comes who is both. He is both the Lord and he is both the anointed one who comes in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring life and fruit. When we see this tree planted by planted on both sides of this huge mirror, we see Jesus and the body of Christ um, spreading out to give all the fruit that the nations will need, to bring all people to this river, to, to have them, to attract them in so that they can again experience the rule of, of, the, of the Lord and his Lamb on the throne of the heavenly city. And he is the one who, whilst he was the tree of life, went up on the tree of curse. Um, curse is everyone who hangs on the tree. And 
becomes a sinner, becomes a scoffer, becomes wicked in order that we might become the righteousness of God. He does it all, all for us. So we see the tree of life again come to earth, this prophetic promise that was, that was this hope, hope displayed in the, in the Eden narrative, in, in, the, in the prophets, in the Psalms. This hope is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, but fulfilled in a way that's more glorious than even they imagined. Those are outside of this. It, it's really sobering, the image that we get. We often get images of, of, of dead trees, say, or, or something like that. And the Bible uses many images for everything. <laughs> so so there's, no, there's no saying, well, this image is right and this image is wrong. Um, it, it's a loads of different perspectives. Most, so much of the Bible is poetry because we, if it just said a sentence, we wouldn't understand, we wouldn't get it. So it piles images on images on images so that eventually we have some scope of what, what God is talking about. And here, the wicked are, I would say, verging into non-being. Which, what I mean by that is you've got this contrasted image of this living tree. And, and those outside of this living tree are chaff. Chaff is not something you notice. It's, it's almost not a thing anymore. It's on the last stage. It used to be part of a husk of wheat, it used to have some value, and now it's been separated from that, and it's blowing in the wind, and very soon it will be dust, and we won't even notice it's gone. You try and find some chaff, it's not a thing that you can find, it's stepping away from the tree of life, and therefore it's, a, it's verging into not being a thing. That is a, that is a sobering image. There's such danger in not being part of this tree of life. But there's such hope that everyone who comes, everyone who comes can be grafted in. Everyone who eats this fruit. Everyone who believes in the word of Jesus. Everyone who comes to the tree of life. Everyone who drinks from the water. Whatever image you want to use, everyone will be saved. So the wicked won't stand in a judgment, and unlike the blessed man who stands, um, but not in the way of sinners, the sinners try and stand in the congregation of the righteous, but they can't. And another way of thinking about this, this difference between the tree of life and, and chaff is that it says this in the, in the last verse, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the righteous. <laughs> And they know him. They're the ones delighting in the law of the Lord. Everyone who's in Christ, child, woman, man, delights in the law of the Lord by, by nature of them being there and meditates on his law. But those who are... <clears throat> uh, and, and they learn to know the Lord through that. But even greater is the fact that the Lord knows them. The Lord knows their way. He knows they're coming out and they're going in. He knows what they're up to. That's why we can pray in that way that I talked about. We can pray like the Psalms do. Because God knows what's in your heart anyway. What's the point of hiding things from God? If you're incredibly angry and you know that angry is irrational, that's okay. He already knows. He already knows that. Pray like that. It's okay. But the Lord 
knows us. The Lord loves us. One of the things that our tree of life, Jesus, is called as the great high priest. And one of the roles of the high priest is to pray for the people. And it, at various times in the New Testament, talks about Jesus interceding for us. And in John 17, we get the high priestly prayer. Just one snapshot of what Jesus is praying for us. And he says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know and be known is what this tree of life ends up in. That is life. To know God and to be known by him. And it's, it's in some ways so simple. <laughs> and yet it's such a profound mystery that's been revealed over the entire course from the start of Genesis to the end of Revelation. That we can know God, be known by him. We've been grafted into this tree of life.